The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. I'm grateful my notes didn't walk off at some point during things. I left them up here and I realized it with a moment of terror. And when Doug went to grab his papers, I was a little nervous. It's happened before. There's precedent. My nerves are valid. But as we come to John 9 today, it it got me thinking of the journey we've been on as we've been working through the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John, I feel, is a little like going to the movies. Um, For those of you who who are moviegoers like myself, you know that about the fifth row up and about eight seats in from any given side, is about the prime position. You don't want to get there late enough that you're stuck in that bottom, you know, couple rows of rejects. We all know those seats. You know you don't want to sit in them. They're terrible. And so you have to get there early enough to guarantee your prime spot. I actually once went to the movies and sat next to a guy who was as close to Sheldon Cooper as I've ever, ever come to, and he was actually bent out of shape because he was one seat over. It's important to people, okay? But when you get there that early, what happens is you end up sitting through the the slideshow that runs before the trailers. You know, there's the advertisements and then the trailers in the movie, but before all of that, you have the advertisements that Scotiabank tells you you're richer than you think, which for everyone, especially everyone under the age of like 40, you're not. (laughs) And... Then you get to the trivia questions, and you have that trivia post picture up there. It's the blurry picture. You can't tell what it is, and there's a little bit of trivia beside it with some obscure fact about a person, and that person will eventually become clear, but the trivia goes on, and then the picture gets a little less blurry, and as the picture gets a little less blurry, the the trivia fact gets a little clearer, and things slowly come into focus. And as they come into focus, you reach a point where you're like, that's Ryan Gosling. No, maybe it's Matt Damon. And then you hit the point where it's like, no, you very clearly know who it is. There's only one right answer. And that is what John has done with his gospel. Is he has taken and written his gospel. The Holy Spirit has inspired him in his writing of it. So that as we read through the gospel of John, the image of who Jesus Christ is becomes clearer and clearer until we are left with only one answer. And so, as the banners say, these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you may have life in his name. Reading through the Gospel of John is so that we can know Jesus and that by knowing him, we can let him transform our life and move us into deeper faith. I love that in in his gospel, John uses the language of light. And he uses in this particular chapter the language of blindness and sight. Because the reality is, as he's writing this, he is not just writing it to his audience 2,000 years ago. He is writing it to us today. And the Holy Spirit is breathing on it and making it alive to us today. And so that as we come to this passage, we're coming to it because in it we are going to see the light of truth. 
we're going to see the light of Christ in it. And by engaging in that, it's going to transform us. The language of sight, of blindness to sight is big. And we're going to be unpacking that a little bit more as we go along. But I invite those of you that are able to stand with me as we, as we jump into our passage. We're going to be in John chapter 9. We're going to be reading the first seven verses. We're going to be going through the whole chapter, but I figured it was a little much to get you all to read with me standing up. So we're just going to do the first seven verses as we dive into things. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground and made some mud with the, with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told them, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. This is God's word for us today. You, you may have a seat. Father, as, as we come to your word today, I ask that by your spirit, you would empower your truth to go forward. And that as we sit in this text and study it to learn more about you and what it means for our lives, that you would make your truth clear. I also ask for grace and your mercy as we come to this text, as we wrestle through the challenges of it and we face the truths that are there, I ask that you would be merciful to us as we face the hard things. Allow us the grace to engage with them well. Allow us the softness to engage with them well. We ask these things in your son's holy name. Amen. So I... Steve made reference to it, and I'm pretty sure Steve and I aren't going to be the only ones to make reference to it, but whoever divvied up John is a jerk, because John 9 is 41 verses, and there are a legitimate, if I'm going quick, four sermons in here, but realistically, we could spend the next two months in here without any bat of an eye. So I'm going to be going quick, so I ask you to keep up. But we're going to dive in. We're going to dive into verses 6 and 7 because 6 and 7 are the place we need to start because they reveal to us some important characteristics of Jesus and who he is. And they're, they're also, as a, as a, as a man, they're, they're the fun passages because they deal with spit and mud, so... Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sense. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. All of, 
all of John is to reveal the character of Jesus. But in these verses, at first glance, they don't seem to reveal much, but they actually hold a lot of weight. The first thing they reveal to us is Jesus' power. Jesus healed a blind man. Jesus healed a blind man. We often, as we come to Scripture, especially for those of us who have grown up in the church, we have heard a lot that Jesus heals people. It's not an uncommon theme. But it's a little, it's a little mind-blowing when you really dig into it. Because at this point in history, blindness had never been cured. In all of the miracles that are recorded in all of human history leading up to Jesus, no one had ever, had ever cured blindness. And so we come to this passage seeing that Jesus is more powerful than blindness. And that's a big deal. Because the next thing that we learn in these two short verses is that Jesus is the Messiah. He is powerful, but he is also the Messiah. The Messiah was the one that, has, that was prophesied for thousands of years before, before Jesus' birth. It was prophesied that he would come and that he would save his people. And the signs that were prophesied about were things like healing the blind. It was said in Isaiah 42 that the Messiah would heal the blind. It's, it's, it's one of the big points. And so Jesus is the first one to do it in history. So it's a clear messianic tie-in to get fancy worded on you. So Jesus is powerful. He's the Messiah. He also has authority. And this is where, this is where we get to dig into the whole spit and mud thing. Because we know that the Jewish people were called to keep the Sabbath holy. And what we learn is that this story happened on the Sabbath. And what you have is you have this group called the Pharisees. The Pharisees were religious leaders. They were power brokers. They were the, the social elite. They were the, ones, the people of prominence. They were, they were the ones who, when they would walk down the street, would be treated reverentially or differently because of their perceived spirituality and their perceived holiness. And, and over the centuries, as the Jewish people had sought to obey the command from the Ten Commandments to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy they had strapped on all of these extra laws to it to make sure that they did. And then they held everyone to it. And it's interesting because when Jesus comes into this story on the Sabbath to heal the man, he does it flying in the face of all of those laws. He used saliva first. Saliva was a traditional Jewish home remedy. 
It was used as a disinfectant. It was used to wash and to clean. And for those of you as a kid who can remember your mom doing this, you see where it comes from. It was expressly forbidden in Sabbath law to use saliva as a home remedy on the Sabbath. And then on top of that, the, the root word for mud is the same word that gets used for dough. And so what Jesus is doing is he is making dough. And when you dig into what the, the law was meant to do, it was, we often just say, you know, on the Sabbath you're not supposed to work. But the subtext of that, the, the deeper meaning of it, was that as as you're not supposed to work, it was modeled after what God did in creation. And God created for six days and rested on the seventh from creating. His work was creating. And so the prohibition on work ran deeper to being also a prohibition on creating. In, in Orthodox Jewish tradition, to rip a piece of paper in two on the Sabbath was not allowed because you are creating two separate pieces of paper. And so Jesus makes, uses spit, which is forbidden, to make mud, which is creating, on the Sabbath to heal the man. And then tells the man to go wash, which is work. And the reason he does this is because he is establishing that he is above human law. He has authority over the natural human way of things. And so we have this image of Jesus as powerful in authority, as Messiah in John 9. And, and that authority is interesting because what he's essentially saying is, you're making all these rules, but I'm the one who made the original law. So I know the actual intent of the original law, and, and your laws need to be submitted to my law. And it, it, it creates this image of a fairly powerful person, which Jesus most assuredly was, but it's all in the context of healing. He heals a blind man. Because that's the, the fourth thing we learn about Jesus in this, is that Jesus is a loving healer. That when he's walking along and he saw the man born blind, he did not simply walk past, but he stopped and he healed. And that he did not allow the rules and the traditions around him. He did not allow the trappings around him to prevent him from loving the man born blind. It's interesting as we come to this, we, we learn about Jesus and we just spent that much time in two verses and now there is the rest. And it's interesting because those two verses are the verses on healing, but now there are the other 39 verses in John chapter 9. It's interesting how 
you know, as your Bibles assign headings, some Bibles put more in, some bless. But the majority of John 9 is usually just under the heading of Jesus heals a man born blind. You know, the majority of this big chapter is just Jesus heals a man. But the, the reality is healing the man is the start of this big discussion, of this debate, of this journey for this man. And what we get in it is we get two trajectories that, that, people can, that people are on in this passage. We get the first, the trajectory of the man who is healed. And then second, we get the trajectory of the Pharisees, of the religious people around this healing and how they react to it. And the rest of the chapter basically goes to give you the, the Cole's notes of it which only is a reference that works if you're over the age of 30, I've realized, because no one under the age of 30 knows what Cole's Notes were. They don't print Cole's Notes anymore. I'm pretty sure that company's out of business. But the Cole's Notes of it, the short blurb of it, is man gets healed. He then goes home. His neighbors say, is that our neighbor? No, it can't be because he's not blind and our neighbor's blind. And he says, no, I'm your neighbor, I'm healed. And then he goes to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees say, who healed you? And he answers. And they said, no, okay, really, what happened? And he answers. And then they call his parents in, which, for those of you my age and under, you know that that's a really fun moment when someone doesn't believe you, and they call your parents in to confirm if you're saying the truth or not. And he was of age, so he was, he was not 12. And he, so they go back and forth, they go through this, what happened, well this happened, what, no really what happened, this happened, and you get to the end, and at the end of the journey, of the end of the chapter, you have this exchange between the man and Jesus. After, after all of the back and forth, after his retelling of his story over and over again, you have this exchange. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, starting in verse 35. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The blind man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. The man born blind, his trajectory starts with the moment of his healing. And as he goes through this journey of over and over again telling his story, it's interesting to see how his view of Jesus shifts. In verse 11, we st he starts when they ask, How then were your eyes open, they demanded. He replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. The man they call Jesus. It's interesting, there's a distance between the man and Jesus. He's not saying, my friend who healed me. He's not saying, my healer was Jesus. He's not bringing Jesus into himself and his circle. He's saying the man, some people out there call Jesus. He's still got Jesus a little bit at arm's length. 
But as you go on and as he comes before the Pharisees, the Pharisees, finally they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. The next time the man answers the question of who Jesus is, it shifted. The next time he answers this question, Jesus is now sitting in a place as a prophet. And what that means is Jesus, as a prophet, is a messenger of God. He brings the truth of God and is a representative of God. And so the man is, is starting to view Jesus in the correct light. And as it goes on and as he engages with the Pharisees, he had starts to identify with Jesus. And so that as the Pharisees push back, he moves more into the Jesus camp. He answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? At this moment, the man is one of Jesus' disciples. He's identifying as one of Jesus' followers. And then at the end, he declares Jesus Lord and worships him. And that word Lord has some nuances to it that are important for us. Because it's not just Lord as in Jesus my boss, Jesus my supervisor. It is Jesus my master and owner. There is this moment where the man in his proclaiming Jesus as Lord and saying I believe is submitting his whole life to Jesus. Giving himself over to Jesus. And the man's trajectory is beautiful. Some things that are interesting that, I, that struck me as I was reading it was how as this man went through his debate with the Pharisees and his neighbors, as he spoke what Jesus had done in his life over and over again, as he set it out, it sank into him. I think there's wisdom in that. As we tell the stories of our faith, as we come to communion later where we tell the story of what Jesus did on the cross for us, we do it because it not only speaks to the people we're speaking to, but to ourselves as well. And it reminds us of the truth of Jesus as God who is powerful, saving, in authority of all, and deeply loving and it reminds us of who our Lord is as his followers. And it helps that truth sink more deeply into us as we tell the stories of our faith. And so I want to encourage you as you go through life to tell the stories of your faith. Not only for those around you, but for yourself as well. I think of the number of times that I get frustrated with God or that 
I question God or wonder where He is. Having forgotten the ways that He has held me, the ways He has guided me, the ways He has been patient in my rebellion, the ways He has been faithful in my youth, the ways that He has loved me and held me through challenging times. And so when we speak those truths to ourselves, it's a powerful faith-building thing. It's also interesting looking at the man and what he gave up for Jesus. This man was blind and his income was begging. And in the Jewish community, they would have taken care of him, but there is a moment in this story where he gives up that community and care for the sake of Jesus. It's interesting, when his parents get called in, in the humiliating way that they do, um, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for already the Jews has decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. Put out of the synagogue, we would now say excommunicated. It's not just, you know, you've got to leave the building. It's you are no longer part of the Jewish faith. And so over who Jesus was, stakes were getting pretty high. And this man identifies in front of the Pharisees as one of Jesus' disciples, and it says they respond this way. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. For his belief in Jesus, he was cast out. And I think that's something we need to be braced for as a reality of faith, is that faith sometimes has a cost. But the result of faith, the object of faith, is Jesus who, as we have said, is powerful, saving, greater than all, and deeply loving to us. Next, we come to the, the Pharisees' trajectory. And at first, in my preparation, I was calling, I was, I was using the language of journeys. I was saying the, the man's journey and the Pharisees' journey. But what you get in this passage is not so much a journey as a revealing of heart. The Pharisees don't really go on a journey in this. We just start to see more and more their heart. We start to see how in their supposed spiritual sight, they have created their own God of things. And so the Pharisees, they... They put Jesus and describe Jesus, they put Jesus into kind of their own box because it allows them to continue living in the hearts that they have shown. They, they too start at the place of Jesus was a man, like, like the blind man did, 
But what you quickly see is that he's a man not of God. And, and then as you go on, you see that they have already decided that anyone who acknowledged Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. They deem Jesus a heretic, a blasphemer, and decide to put him out. And then they later on say that Jesus was sinful. And they then, as they're attempting to say that they are def defining who is what is heresy and what is blasphemy, they blaspheme themselves by, de by declaring the God of the universe to be a sinner. And it's interesting because they do all of this and it's not saying that they developed this opinion. It's not saying that they work to formulate this opinion. It's, not, it's saying, too, that they actually don't really listen. And the man gets frustrated and basically says, you're not listening. Because they have already made up their mind. And the heart we see in them is a heart where their God is not God but themselves. Their God is the prestige they've got. Their God is their comfort. Their God is their, the looks they get as they walk through their community. Their God is the way that they are honored. And so you have these two trajectories, and the interesting thing is it would be easy for me to be like, all right, be like the blind man, don't be like a Pharisee, sermon done. But the reality is there's nuances to all of this. And the reality is at points, we often flip-flop between trajectories. And it's not as cut and dry as one or the other. We wrestle because we are sinful. I have been spending a lot of time in Romans with with my teens where I work at Living Bible Explorers. And as you read through Romans, Paul lays that out. He, he expresses that as well, this battle within us between what we know is good and doing what we, I want to do, but I, don't, I do not do what I want to do, but I do what I do not want to do. And all of that debate, he lays that out in Romans. And it's, it's a thing that we need to acknowledge that and we need to acknowledge, though, that Jesus needs to be our Lord. Because it is only then that we, it is only then that we are in the midst of His love most fully and His purpose most fully. As we come to the end of things, we're going to go back to the beginning of things. We're going to go look at chapter 9, verse 3. Because I feel in many ways this is the hardest verse in the whole chapter. And even though we have gone big picture with this whole chapter, I feel that what this chapter has been doing is preparing us for the application of itself. 
the application of this passage is found in the passage itself. And that is how we face passages like verse 3. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. See, when he first comes across the blind man, there, his disciples very boneheadedly in front of the blind man ask, Why, is this man blind because he's a sinner or because his parents are a sinner? Not exactly the most sensitive people out there. But the way Jesus responds is so challenging because he does not he does not say, oh, it's the man's fault, or oh, it's the parent's fault. Instead of, instead of looking at the cause of the passage, or the cause of the blindness, sorry, he switches things around and speaks to the purpose of the blindness. And he says the purpose of this blindness is so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. The challenge of that is, the implication of that is, this man was made blind for the glory of God. And that is not a comfortable thing or a palatable thing to say, but it is the truth of Scripture. And, and though it is a challenging thing to say, it in the same moment is so comforting. Because our God is powerful. He is saving. He has authority over all. And he is deeply loving. And if our God was not that way, I don't know that I would want to follow him. If my God was not powerful enough to be sovereign over all, I would not want to follow a God who did not hold the hand of a disabled blind man, who did not intimately know this man and create him for a purpose and a reason with a beautiful purpose that has, that has lasted 2,000 years to teach us here today. Our God is sovereign, and that means it's uncomfortable at points, but it's also beautiful because his deep love works through his sovereignty and it's challenging but he does things for a purpose Romans 8 is beautiful as a chapter because of how it delves into the struggle of suffering I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us and later on, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. It's an uncomfortable thing to talk about the sovereignty of God in a blind man. But it's a beautiful thing because in it we see that God works purpose in all all situations 
and those who follow him, those who seek him, those who hold Jesus, who hold God as God at the center of who they are and declare him Lord, we are promised that, we, that God will work all things for those who love him. I speak this on a journey myself. Today, almost to the day, marks seven months since my father passed. And as I said, it's a flip-flop thing because six months ago, I don't know that I could have stood in front of you and said the sovereignty of God brings me comfort. But God, in his good purposes, has not left me in these months. And I can stand before you now and let you know that I have seen the purposes of God and the hands of God on my life, on the life of my family, over these last months. And so I don't flippantly talk about the sovereignty of God knowing that it is something that it's easy to say words without knowing the deep meaning of them. But I want you to know that God's sovereignty for me is a comfort. For me is a joy. Because his sovereignty, his purpose, his will has been worked in my life, was worked in my father's life, is being worked in my wife's life, in my mother's life, and in all of us as a family. Jesus, I thank you so much that you are that you are powerful, more powerful than anything, period. I thank you that you are sovereign in your authority over all, that you are our Savior. I thank you that you show us through your scripture your deep love for us, your deep gift to us of yourself on this earth, your act on the cross, your resurrection, and how that has paved the way for us to be your children, to follow you. And so Jesus, as we come to your table to celebrate the Lord's Supper, I ask that as we speak the truth of what you have done for all of us in your work on the cross, I ask that you, that as we speak the truth of your body and your blood broken and shed for us, that you would use it to deepen our faith, that you would remind us that we follow a sovereign, good, mighty God who is more wonderful and majestic than 
any earthly thing. And that when we are your children, when we declare you Lord, your glory, your purpose is made manifest through us. Walk with us this week as we go. Lord, we stand here before you mindful of your holiness, mindful of your beauty, of your power, and your love, and your grace. We invite you, Lord God, to have your way in us. We invite you to make yourself known, to make your kingdom great, and we invite you to use us to be a part of that. We long for that, Lord. I thank you that we are safe in you like we said before. I thank you that you are going to use every circumstance to honor yourself. And I pray for us, Lord, I pray for us that when all of the pretenses are out of the way, whenever our guard is down, when we are being who we are as if no one is watching, I pray that even still our lives will tell the story of who Jesus Christ is, who has saved us and who is our Lord, our owner and our friend. We give you all praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be blessed as you go from here.